Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And we've been talking with Dr. Stephen Whiteside from the Mayo Clinic about childhood anxiety. He is the author of The Anxiety Coach, which to, to me, if I had had this guide when I was parenting young children, I would have saved myself so many sleepless nights. Thank you for writing the book, first of all. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really enjoy talking with you. So let, let's talk about OCD seems to accompany anxiety. It's no longer you just have one thing. It's just like almost you get a right hand and a left hand. Why is that? That's a great question. Um, OCD used to be an anxiety disorder, um, and it's now in its own category, probably because OCD just, there's a lot of different flavors of OCD, and some are very much anxiety driven. Mm. I'm afraid if I touch that door, I will get germs and die. Mm -hmm. And then others are are not at all anxiety. It just, it, I put the pen down and it feels like it's in the wrong place. So I pick it up and put it down over and over again. I don't think anything's going to happen. It just feels weird. I don't like it. So that's probably why OCD is in its own bucket but anxiety disorders are the most common other mental health problem to go along with OCD. So they're very much related. And importantly, we treat them all with exposure therapy. When we're trying to help a family identify whether or not an anxiety disorder or OCD is the right approach is that we start with this general concept. Are they more afraid, nervous than we would expect? Mm -hmm. And then after that, we say, well, which of the specific diagnoses does it fall in? Is it social anxiety or generalized anxiety or specific phobia or OCD? Because as you mentioned, there's a lot of overlap between all of them and we treat them all the same. And it's important to know which it is because that's what we're going to focus on in terms of what the exposures are. But we don't really need, we don't have to beat ourselves up figuring out which diagnosis it is because it's probably more than one. And it's not particularly helpful to be given a bunch of diagnoses for what's fundamentally one problem. How do you deal with OCD with intrusive thoughts? Because exposure therapy doesn't seem like that's going to help there. That's a great, that's a really great question. And so there are three different ways we can do exposures. And this is one of the chapters that we go through in the second part of the book. The basic idea is you need to face your fears over and over again until you learn what you're afraid of is not so dangerous. And that's pretty straightforward if you're afraid of dogs. Yeah. It also makes sense if you're afraid of germs. You go touch a bunch of germs or social anxiety, go start conversation, give speeches. But what if what sets off your anxiety are the thoughts in your head, yeah. whether it's intrusive OCD thoughts or traumatic memories or just general worries? Yeah. Um, because there's nothing to go and do. And it turns out the way you do exposures is that you repeat those intrusive, upsetting thoughts over and over and over and over again until they get boring. It's one of the least intuitive things that we do, which makes it one of the more enjoyable, fun ones to explain. To oh family. my gosh. So, so give me an example. Um, I had a friend with really debilitating anxiety who thought that if she got near her mother, she might murder her mother. How do you do that one? Take us through oh, yeah. the, yes. the example. Yeah. So the first thing that we do, just to make sure we're on the right track, is that we just need to be, make very sure that those intrusive thoughts are OCD, anxiety in nature, yeah. as opposed to really being angry at your mother and being a violent yeah. person wanting to hurt them. And the way we figure that, and, and it, that's pretty obvious in this example, but that's really hard for just a parent to figure out with their child who's having suicidal thoughts or thoughts mm -hmm. of hurting people or inappropriate sexual thoughts. Yeah. That is terrifying and really uncomfortable for a parent. And so that process of figuring out, what, is my child suicidal or are they having intrusive self-harm thoughts? Or does my child want to, why is my, is my child angry at me and just like deep down inside? Or are they having intrusive OCD thoughts about stabbing me? And so the way we figure that out is 
one, what are the situations that it happens in? If so, if they just come out of the blue, I'm just in the kitchen and I saw a knife and it's all of a sudden I had the thought I could stab myself or my mother, mm. probably OCD. If the thoughts come up when you're angry or feeling very sad and down about yourself, probably not. Oh. Second piece is how do you react? So if you're in the kitchen, you see that knife, you have the thought of stabbing your mother and you freak out. You're like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? I'm so scared. I better stay away from knives. Yeah. Probably OCD. That's number one, make sure we're on the right track. And then right. number two is whatever the thought is that's stuck in your head, you just have to say it. So in your friend's example, uh, she would have to say either I'm going to murder my mother or I want to murder my mother or whatever the thought, or I want to stab her, whatever the thought that causes the most distress, say it over and over and over again. Mm. And you learn two things. Number one, thoughts are just thoughts. Thinking something doesn't make you do it, doesn't make it come true. And two, even the worst thoughts become boring, not pleasant, but boring with repetition. Yeah, that's so, it's just completely fascinating. I notice with anxiety, any transition is really hard. Um, things out of the ordinary, even great things that, that kids could be looking forward to, Disneyland or the holidays become so emotional that they can't cope. So how do we deal with kids when they begin to show that even things that are good and they might look forward to become a, a part of their anxiety? So, you know, kind of the answer, the way we approach that is looking at the situation and trying to pinpoint as much as possible what it is that's causing the anxiety. Mm -hmm. uh, because being anxious about new things um, could be primarily that going to the amusement park is going to involve being around a lot of people. And I'm probably going to have to talk to people, uh, answer questions, things like that. And it makes me very socially anxious. And it's my social anxiety gets triggered when I'm in a situation around people I don't know. But that could also be you know, like a family holiday, going to visit aunts and uncles and cousins, super exciting. And after a few days, everything is smooth. But that first introduction and having to re-meet them after not seeing them for a while just really highlights my social anxiety. Mm. Or it could be, you know, going places means separating from parents, you know, doing activities without them or being away from home, which just makes them nervous. Or they just are, tend to be worriers that whenever anything's coming up, their mind immediately goes to all the things that could go wrong. We're going to miss our flight. Uh, maybe it's going to be bumpy. Maybe what if we don't like the hotel? What if there's, it's, what if there's a dangerous place that we're at? Um, so kind of understanding what the fears are um, and then setting up a exposure plan to help face those fears and decrease the general anxiety about new situations. I'm so interested in the link between the gut and anxiety because almost every kid I've ever met who has anxiety is also a very picky eater, really likes the white starchy stuff gets sick in their stomach first before the anxiety is even identified. It's in their stomach first. How are you treating this gut brain access as part of your discussion with families of children who have severe anxiety? It's complicated because the eating issues and the anxiety can each cause each other and they can get in the way of treating each other or also just kind of go hand in hand. So one way we approach it is just is helping people understand what anxiety is the, you know, the fight or flight response. When we feel anxious, it's because we feel like we're in danger and we want to make sure that we're safe. And so our body flips into the fight or flight response where our bodily resources and energy are going to 
big muscles that would help us to run away or protect ourselves, which probably was very helpful eons ago. And it can be helpful when you're in a threatening situation, but it's not at all helpful when you're worried about giving a presentation or taking a test. Mm. And one of the things that you don't really need to do when your life is in danger, when you're in fight or flight is digest food. So the stomach is sort of last on the list of things that we should be supporting when we're feeling anxious. And really that's also not very helpful when you're at lunch and at school and you're feeling socially nervous, you don't have any place to sit, so you have no appetite. So part of it is helping them understand that, yeah, this is just a normal part of anxiety. Our general goal is that if we can treat anxiety, then those other physical symptoms will decrease. But we also need to pay attention to, to kids' health. And this is something that we talk about when we're figuring out what whether it's an anxiety disorder. We also want to make sure that we're ruling out what is not an anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. And also when we're talking about treatment, what are common things that get in the way? And food and nutrition can be one of those. When kids don't eat enough and they're weight kind of goes down for where they are naturally, they get more stomach aches, they get more reactive, more anxious, less able to think flexibly. And sometimes just that process can look like an anxiety disorder. Right. Sometimes anxiety, fear of throwing up, fear of choking, fear of germs can lead to a decrease in appetite, which then leads to these symptoms, which just makes everything worse. It's hard to be successful with exposure therapy when you don't have enough gas in the tank to be successful. So typically we're trying to balance helping kids with good eating and nutrition and sleep and other general hygiene that helps us feel better. And then also treating the anxiety at the same time. And both of those take time and effort. So we often have to sort of put one before the other and figure out which is more important to address first. How often do you see kids outgrow anxiety? Yeah, you know, I don't have an answer to that because um, I was not privileged enough to kind of see them over time. We know just from common sense, kids outgrow things. We all know people who are sort of a shy, quiet kid, and you wouldn't expect that now looking at them. So it's it's certainly possible. When kids have a more severe problem with anxiety, some do get better but not nearly as much like with depression. So when they do research studies, often one group of of the kids in the study don't get any treatment or they get a placebo medication. And and, in studies of depression, many of those kids get better. With studies of anxiety, the number of kids that get better without any intervention is much lower. Mm. So when anxiety is a problem, you're much more likely to get stuck in that avoidance cycle and it's less likely to get better. Did you suffer from anxiety as a kid? I did. Yes. If you would ask any of the uh, other kids who knew me, um, they would tell you that I was shy and they used to make fun of me for my face turning red when I would get embarrassed it, in a supportive way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I was I was a shy kid. I already mentioned I had a fear of dogs. Did you um, have any kind of intervention? I had constant intervention because both my parents were clinical psychologists. I never I never was formally diagnosed with uh, an anxiety disorder or taken for treatment or therapy. So that's what leads me to the next question, which I, I'm constantly uh, amazed by. Do you think that a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder helps or hurts kids? Yeah, that, that is a, a really good question and one that we very much try to take seriously. It, uh, to, to kind of jump to the answer, I think that it helps because it identifies a problem that's there and leads to treatment to helping kids feel better and get them back on a trajectory to be successful. Mm. But we're always trying to be clear that mental health diagnoses are basically just labels. They're not diseases. There's nothing 
physically wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you at all. It's just that you feel more nervous than you would like, and it's distressing and it's getting in the way. And it's helpful to put a label on that. Right? We all think in categories, we talk in categories. It's just helpful to put that label on it. Um, but like back to that other discussion about if you have one anxiety disorder, you often have another because they tend to go together. I, I try to minimize the importance of the diagnosis because coming in to talk to the doctor and leaving with these three labels of problems that you have can be demoralizing. And I don't like being told I have a problem and kids are, are the same. So we should always try to use the diagnostic process and the labeling process in a way that is clearly intended and is likely to help the child rather than to make them feel stigmatized. The reason that I asked the question in particular now is because, you know, if you look at the CDC's self-reported anxiety levels, depression levels, it is, it's off the charts. And it feels to me like there's two things that are happening. More kids may be getting diagnosed, but more kids are also really identifying with their diagnosis. I'm not sure in the long term that that's really helpful for people who need to use their creativity and all of their, you know, all of their resources yeah. to go out into the world. So how do we treat mental health problems without having it become someone's identity? Yes, that is a very important issue. And one that I don't want to be flippant, but one I think that we don't really worry about in our clinic, because if you have an anxiety disorder, if we're deciding that anxiety is a problem, the next step is you need to go do that thing over and over again till it's no longer a problem. Mm. But, so it, it's very normal for a parent to say, my child's anxious. So to keep life going and to take care of my child, I'm not to do things for them. And maybe that can become labeled as helicopter parenting, but parents are just doing their best to take care of their child and get through day to day. Yeah, That's normal. That's not a big deal. We involve parents in our treatment and we are helping them see that and having them take small steps to change it. Mm -hmm. What really upsets me is when families have gotten the message from the health system or the mental health system in particular, your child has anxiety or some other mental health problem. Therefore, we need, they are more fragile. We need mm -hmm. to protect them. We need, they can't do this. They can't do that. When they're upset, you can't put demands on them. They've got to go to their mm -hmm. safe place, their comfort zone. And that creates bigger problems that we then look amazing because then we can break those down and be successful. But more importantly, that can be really detrimental to a child and kind of lead to this idea that I've got a mental health issue that defines who I am and is something that prevents me from doing things. Yeah, so, that was a really interesting answer. And, and one that I think kind of you began to see the kids who were diagnosed at eight and nine with generalized anxiety moving into college and needing safe spaces and trigger warnings and the ability to have like a bubble around them as they move into the world. And the world isn't always going to be that cautious and caring, which is difficult. So I just, I love that conversation because I, I, I'm fascinated by it. Like, how do you go ahead and treat them and do the things they need to have done without making them feel that they are fragile? I love your approach. It's really amazing. Yeah. Is there anything that I haven't asked you regarding the book, regarding your messaging to parents that you want them to know? Yeah, you know, I think in general, uh, and particularly with the book, one of the main messages is just to help people understand what anxiety disorders are, that they're very common and they're treatable, and there are people who can help. And just understanding that, I think, can be reassuring and helpful 
I wish that the book could go farther in making treatment more widely available. Um, because while I do sincerely believe that anxiety is so common, you don't have to have an anxiety disorder to wish that you or your child was a little bit braver and more comfortable in situations. You don't have to have a, a label put on you to do that. So I think this book can help lots of people with those lower level fears and worries that they would like to tweak. And this is all they need. Hmm. And there are probably some who have more substantial anxiety that they can use this book. And they just unfortunately don't have a therapist, but they're able to put this together and treat pretty significant anxiety on their own. But for those, if it was just as easy as reading a book, I wouldn't have a job. It's just hard. It's hard to make your own child face their fears. Kids don't listen to their parents. Kids' parents don't know anything. But if someone else tells, someone in a suit with a diploma on the wall tells them the same thing, they're more likely to listen. They're more likely to cooperate with someone who's not their parent. So just simply having somebody who can help you do this process. And if we can educate parents and empower parents that this is what I need to help my child. And if the therapist is not offering this, they're offering something else, then I'm going to go someplace else or I'm going to influence a therapist to do something that's more evidence-based. Um, I think if we can do that, um, we can hopefully make a, a small change in some kids' lives. Dr. Stephen Whiteside, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope that you will come back because I want to have you back and talk about the role of trauma in creating anxiety and what we can do for children of trauma. I think it's so interesting how many kids have gone through multiple moves, multiple divorces, multiple exposures to active shootings at schools. And we're asking, why do they have anxiety? So I hope you'll come back and join us and speak about that. Thank you so much for having me. I would love to come back and, and thank you for your interest in, in kids with anxiety and in mental health in general. It's super important. Ba, 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 ba.